podcast, which was recorded remotely during lockdown, Kat Howard and I cover some hot topics. These include workload, mental health and well-being, effective time-saving marketing strategies, and how to overcome imposter syndrome. So welcome to the first episode of The Full English from Pearson Edexcel. I'm Pam McLaughlin. I used to be an English teacher, but now I'm a product manager for Edexcel English. Today, my guest is Kat Howard, the founder of the renowned teacher resource website LitDrive, author of Stop Talking About Wellbeing, blogger, assistant head teacher, and mother. Now, that is an impressive list, which makes me think about teaching and the issue of workload and work-life balance. But we'll come back to that later. So firstly, thank you so much for joining me today, Kat. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Okay. So first of all, I'd like to start by asking you to share a memory from your own school days. And this can be anything you like, just something that you remember and for whatever reason, really. So when you're ready, if you could just remind us of one of your memories. <laughs> yes, I'll go a little while back. Um, I went to um, a primary school. It was kind of on the East Coast. And um and one thing that I always remembered was my um, my teacher, my primary school teacher. She was um, a really eclectic lady, Mrs. Mutual. And um, she was from um, the West Indies, um, where my dad is also from. So it was this kind of shared conversation that always went on at parents' evening. But above all else, she was really, really passionate about reading. And I came to primary school having already read. My dad had decided to teach me. Education was, you know, a real kind of key traditional value for him. And so every Friday afternoon when the rest of the class went and did their kind of group reading, class reading with the teacher and with the with the TA, sorry, she would take me on my own um, to the library, the school library. Um, and we'd sit and read. We'd sit and read um, all sorts. And we, we worked through, I remember kind of year five, year six, we worked through The Hobbit together. And I have some really amazing memories of the discussions that would take place around those books. Um, and I think that was such a massive contributing factor to me realising how fundamental reading is, you know, and probably contributes yeah. to why I'm an English teacher today about how fundamental reading is um, to, you know, understanding the world, I think, not just kind of, you know, understanding how to read and write. So that's definitely stayed with me. Wow, that's an amazing memory because what age were you, did you say again, when you were was, reading things uh, like that? Yeah, so I was like year five when... Um, when that's about started working nine that's or like, ten. Yeah, nine or ten. That um, is... Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, from reading at that point, as you say, so many things from that that help you in later life. I mean, in terms of reading, I mean, I know for as I was a child myself, obviously, my mum used to read to me every night. And I think you can't under you can't, you know, you can never sort of re, you can't underestimate the value of reading in terms of the impact it can have on learners, can't you? And as children, as you say, when they get older into schools. So, yeah, that's and really I, I, and I think there's that finite time because obviously now my son is is 11 he doesn't want to really be read to anymore and we we kind of underestimate that finite time that we have to read to children and they actually want to be read to um and and how we kind of we we should really cherish that that period of time of of being able to read aloud and they actually you know they 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 want to be active participants in that I think is so important yeah, I agree totally. And as you say, and as we were just saying, I think then when you go into schools and as you were a teacher and I was a teacher myself, you realise that if you haven't got those foundations, those building blocks, you know, and you haven't got that, um, you know, that reading ability, it really just 
you know if you have got it, it unlocks the whole curriculum to you doesn't it really and yeah. it just makes your experience in school and your understanding and your learning so much easier you know to to sort of progress in a way doesn't it so it's really important especially these days I think with reading um well as we know in schools a lot of the time a lot of children they just don't want to read because they don't find it as exciting and engaging as doing something else that's available to them to these or, days. yeah or they've never had or they've never heard experiences of of somebody reading aloud and bringing a text to life and you, and I think that's just a massive game changer that's our that's our biggest secret weapon I think <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I used to love doing the voices of mice and men and things like that back in the day. So, yeah, I think it's true about the reading aloud part. And, you know, when I was teaching myself, you'd find students who hadn't even had a book in their house. And that's yeah. the thing you don't really realise until you, you know, when you're teaching a class and you realise how different the, the um, backgrounds are and how different the experiences are of reading from each pupil. And like you say, if you read aloud in schools, then everybody's getting access to that sort of situation, to the, you know, to the books or to the reading that's going to help them for you know like I say accessing the curriculum in a better way yeah really interesting um what about your experience so far then as a teacher I mean how did you get into teaching and how have you you know sort of found because now you're an assistant head teacher is that right mm -hmm. that's correct yeah at school in um, Justin school in Northamptonshire mm -hmm. so when you before how long have you been teaching um so this is my I want to say ninth year um yeah <laughs> right yeah time um, so goes quick doesn't so it so I came yeah. quite late to teaching um I was a senior leader for High Street Bank for a period of time I managed um the northwest region for um retail and I was kind of over I oversaw recruitment and retention which is probably why we kind of when we talk about um my book in a little while what, why those ideas have been ticking over when I came to teaching about kind of the the differences and the the, the contrast between um, working in um, the finance sector and then, then working in teaching and seeing how we we dealt with recruitment and retention. So I worked um, for six years as a senior leader for um, leading High Street Bank. I then decided um, to go traveling for a little while and then um, worked for when I came back while I was um, studying. Um, I also worked at a um, public sector union um, for a period of time as well, which kind of really gave me an insight as to um i think the importance of people in um in in any sector in, in any industry and um and how we go around supporting people in um in in the workplace i think as probably that's probably provided a little bit of an insight for me as to what that can look like yeah because i know in your book that you talk about the fact that there's a lot more that used to go on when you were working in the you know when you were working in the bank uh, in terms of the support etc and you know the time taken out to make sure everything was okay and you know you were nurtured not nurtured but I mean you know you had that support network there didn't you you know ready for you like you had um coaches mentors and that kind of thing didn't you, you had time to yeah and it was it was just more of a structure I think when we thought about people coming into the profession and it costs so much money and it probably actually the cost to um, new recruits coming into education is probably a lot higher than it was for um, for those coming into the finance sector um, but we were so mindful of, of how much money we were spending and investing in new staff that it was it was imperative that we kept them um, and so there was a great deal of kind of the structures and the processes put into place to make sure that we we were preparing people 
people for when they first entered the profession. Um, we were preparing people to train them for the next step before they secured that next role or that promotion or anything else. And so there was a great deal of almost, you know, anticipating what was going to come next for those people so that they felt well prepared by the time they got there. And I think that's the massive contrast between um banking and education or other sectors in education is that sometimes people find themselves in roles that maybe they don't necessarily feel like they've had the time to prepare for as a result of of, of recruitment and retention i think um and we need to think carefully about how we how we you know support those people to make sure they feel confident in the role that they find themselves in yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I did think that when I was reading the section about that. I mean, I'm, I know, for example, myself, when I was a teacher, the sec, because I came to it quite late as well in my second year, um, after my NQT, I went straight on to be a head of year eight. And so, you know, you're just thrown in, you know, it's my choice, obviously, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it, but you kind of like quick, massive learning curve straight away as you're going along. Whereas I think in some of the sectors, they sort you know, you sort of have more preparation for it, like you say, don't you? So, yeah, it's interesting, the difference in the different sectors. And I mean, obviously, that can lead into the current situation with teacher retention. I mean, how do you what are you sort of what is your view on that in terms of, um, you know, the amount of teachers that are leaving the profession early, especially you hear they leave within five years quite often now, don't they? Yeah, and I and I think it is that there's so much work that and fantastic work that's gone into providing a really clear um, guidance for early careers teachers and the early careers framework. Um, re, you know, the Department of Education have done amazing things to make sure that we're nurturing in those early years, and yet we're still seeing people leave um, within that five-year period. Where we currently have a quarter of a million teachers in the UK that don't that aren't teaching that aren't in our profession so is we that many this, wow yeah yeah so we have this bulk of, of staff essentially that that have decided for whatever reason and I think when you come to teaching it's a little bit of a calling so it's yeah the majority of the time when you speak to teachers that have left that are very reluctant to have done so um and so I think there's a great I think that we need to think about what's what's happening that where that our wastage rates are so high because I mean the media talks about a recruitment and retention um crisis we're not actually there yet it's kind of the the upward slant in the next two or three years as to when we're going to see a real issue with the amount of children that we've got coming in schools against the amount of teachers that we're losing and so I think it's like you say I think it's about thinking okay how do we support teachers at every stage of their career um, so you're winding down retired you know to retirement teachers your teachers who want to start a family alongside um, yeah. their roles you know the motherhood penalties is alive and kicking in education um, and and we need to think about how we support people to have lives alongside teaching because it is a really demanding job um, I, I don't think it's necessarily useful to start comparing it with the jobs I know that a lot of a lot of kind of research and people do but it, it, in itself it's it's um it's a challenging role and so we need to think about how we're supporting people every stage of their career um to feel confident to do it well I think because it is so rewarding isn't it but it's just that whole you know the whole um it can take over if you let it can't it I don't mean that yeah because yeah. you know if you want yeah. to let it take over that's fine I mean I know when I first started teaching I had younger children so it was a bit I didn't have enough time to sort of let it take over as it were but as they got older I put more and more into it and you know and I was a head of English and media studies and it was just time cons massively time consuming but I loved it but um you know and no, then, 
Um, There's different stages in your life, isn't there, when you want to have that sort of, but, you know, really, should it be all consuming? It shouldn't be really, could it, should it? But like we say, it's so rewarding that, you you know, and there's all these different personalities that you're dealing every day in the classroom and it's great. You get these relationships with the students and it's just a really, it can be really rewarding, can't it? That's the shame about it. Yeah, I think, I think teaching is very seductive in the fact that, uh, you know, it's such a fantastic job that it's very, very easy to get pulled in, especially at the moment. It's very easy to get pulled in and work over above and beyond what you want to because you enjoy it. We don't necessarily. And so the the problem that comes with that is that we don't necessarily realise when we're getting further along the stages where there's an an opportunity or a possibility of burnout. Yeah, we are enjoying Mm. we are enjoying the process along the way. Um, So, yeah, I, I think it's a very seductive profession as a whole. Yeah, no, I agree with that about the burnout. I think that's what was happening to me in the end, because you just put so much full on for several years. And then suddenly it's like, do you know what? I don't know if I've got the energy to do that anymore. But um, yeah, (laughs) hey ho. So Kat, um, let's talk about your book now, because that's been a great success and I've really enjoyed reading it. And I know a lot of, um, you know, ex-colleagues of mine and teachers have raved about how much they enjoyed the book and how much they gained from the book. So the book is called Stop Talking About Wellbeing. And the subtitle, if you want to call it that, is A Pragmatic Approach to Teacher Workload. So would you just like to explain a bit for the uh, listeners what we mean by what you mean by pragmatic approach to teacher workload, please? Yeah, I think that sometimes um, we can think of well-being as a process when actually well-being is the outcome of everything that we do. And so as teachers, I was becoming more and more aware, having spoken to teachers and researched this a little bit, that actually um, if we put structures in place in school to, to reduce workload for teachers, they're going to feel better as a result. And so it was almost kind of reframing and, and flipping the, the idea of teacher well-being, which was being really kind of, you know, discussed in, in prevalence across the media um, and, you know, Department of Education and the workload challenge report had come out and everything. Um, and how we can start thinking about, OK, well, we can't dictate what makes people feel better because that's really bespoke to people. So what can we look at within schools to support people, which was very much, OK, how can we look at the workload of teachers and make adjustments in schools um, that support people to be able to walk out the door earlier or not take marking home and, you know, all of these things. That yeah, because I just, just I sorry to interrupt you. I just no, no. Say, one of the things I found interesting was that all the years it was all it started to be, you know, be more like you say of a prevalent issue and it was kind of student well-being was the main thing which is how it should be obviously mm. but I'm just saying and then there was a bit of a shift where we suddenly started realizing actually what about teachers as well because you know they're the ones that have got to deliver all this and to make sure that you know the whole community in schools are thriving etc and I that's when I you know you start to realize don't you that there's a big something missing in terms of teacher workload and how they're going to address that so that was I thought it was really good you know that that's now starting to come to the forefront like you say it's in the media but what are they what are we actually going to do about it and I also think that yeah, I remember being told in my training year, oh, you're the most important. The teacher is the most important resource in the room. And finding, <laughs> yeah. finding it a little bit funny because I was like, That's well, true. what? but what am I meant to do if I don't have a lesson? <laughs> I can't just stand there and not really understanding what that meant. But actually, as I've you know become more experienced and understand teaching a little bit better, I, I really appreciate that statement that, you know, that I, I, I'm far better to get, a, you know, full eight hours sleep. That, that's a distant yeah. memory with my children. Yeah, but course. to get a decent eight hours sleep 
and take my knowledge, my knowledge of English, of my subject, into the room with me than I am sitting up until two o'clock in the morning putting a PowerPoint together. And yeah, it was just kind of thinking about what, okay, what can I do personally on a personal level to improve workload? Um, but actually, how can, how can, as a senior leader, how can I create systems that support teachers to reduce their workload as well? So the things you talk about in your book, have you implemented those things in your you know in your current role in your school at the moment yeah definitely um I've That's been here yeah I've been at Dustin since January but half the I was writing the book before I started my role there but half the reason I was so attracted to the school is as a result of interviewing my head for the book so it's a kind of it's a funny path how ah, we've ended right. up here. Yeah. So I knew that, you know, there were certain there are certain schools that I look at as case studies within the book um, that carry out things like workload charters that have really thought very carefully about workload reduction in their schools. And Sam Strickland, my head, was one of those people that I spoke to. And so I already knew that I was going into a school where my values aligned very much with the school's approach to workload. That was really important to me. Um, our performance management model I've, I've redesigned, which now follows a coaching model. We don't. Um, we work monitoring staff against data um, because it's not necessarily it doesn't do what we want it to do. We're going to develop people to become experts, which is you know what we want to invest their time in. And so a, a great deal of what I talk about in the book, we, we have implemented um, or I've implemented within my role at, at the school now. So, yeah, I think that's really important to to kind of live your values um, yeah definitely. definitely I'm really yeah. pleased to hear that you know that's something that you've been able to do and do you, as far as you know are there other schools that are sort of you know uh, incorporating some of the ideas and the things you know there's some of the practical strategies that you've given in the book about workload as far as you know in other places yeah, yeah I think it's and it's really pleasing actually because I've had so many more conversations in the last kind of you know during lockdown with other schools and had like zoom meetings with other schools about what Brilliant. we're doing and sharing ideas so I think it's given people the, the time and the opportunity to rethink how they can support staff that's um, a really interesting is, yeah, point the fact that you can fantastic. do it now like you say you could be anywhere in the country like you and I are at the minute yeah. remotely uh, we, you know you can have these conversations and that's the amazing thing that the whole lockdown thing has brought out hasn't it that people didn't really you know do before so that's that's a really good point so yeah. you can speak to other leaders in other parts of the country or other areas can't you which is and sort of like you say see what they see if they can yeah, see how so, they would do it kind of thing or how yeah. they would use it. so um I delivered a head teachers conference over in Derby just before lockdown and I did also did a similar one um in another area of the Midlands as well and since then I've had you know school leaders senior leaders that went to those courses that I've then had meetings with and talked through our policies and how how to improve workload within schools so that's just really pleasing um the national um um, the Scottish National kind of their their education um, department of their their um, their government are now using um, one of the chapters from the book um, as part of their um, teacher leadership program that will run. It's essentially our, almost a, a similar ilk of our MPQ in the in England. Um, oh, yeah. So they're now using a proportion of the book for senior leaders to think about how they develop relationships in schools and communicate effectively so um it's well, just that must be really really you know I bet you're so proud that's a really good thing isn't it that you've had yeah. that impact that's amazing that, that's that's what I wanted to do really I just want to shine a light on schools that are are doing it and managing to get it right and you know nothing is being kind of there's no compensating and nothing is being lost in the process from putting things like this in place so yeah it's, you know I'm over the moon that it's it's had an impact like that it's brilliant yeah definitely 
that must be you know like I say well you just said it yourself you're over the moon about it it's, it's just amazing isn't it really yeah. um one talk continuing again talking about various things from the book one of the things I found interesting was the um imposter syndrome chapter and it wasn't until I read it I was like oh yeah actually I can see that's happened to me quite a lot and I'm just saying that because I'm sure lots of other people have had the same situation I mean for example you know you've when you've the interesting thing about that chapter as well one of the interesting things was when you talk about promotions and careers and the language you'd use when you try to apply for jobs etc and get promotions I mean I know when I first applied for the head of year job it was sort of um you know the kind of the letter that I put in first of all the covering letter the wording that I used was oh I sometimes like you said you know you kind yeah. of a bit don't want to push yourself too much don't want to sound like you're being big-headed or something I don't know what it is I whereas when you actually um, go on I think that's very much a female attribute as well that, exactly. um, that section of the book came from a presentation a session that I ran at a women ed um, conference um, the year previously and it was kind of the, the the thinking that came out of the research that I did to prepare for that session and it, it is very, as the chapter says it's very prevalent within women and not men that that we apologize for our behavior and we don't necessarily use assertive language to build up our strengths um and um i wrote a blog a little while ago about job applications i've been helping quite a few people through lockdown with with job applications ah, and and the first thing that i will say to that and it's always female applicants is yeah. strip out your tentative language yeah you know, I feel and that sort of thing yeah, as well yeah you know like use that assertive language to showcase your behavior don't apologize for for you know for where you might not have um strengths in other areas build on what you know and build on what you're you're good at um um I think that's so important but we need to we need to do that we need to model that to each other I think in order to to really kind of grow that as a as a culture of of not being apologetic for what we don't yet know I think is yeah. really important no, there's I loads agree, of stuff definitely. I don't know yeah well this <laughs> so. is it exactly and I mean when you think about like the, uh, the whole imposter syndrome thing I mean the thing about teaching as well which I thought to myself yeah that's really a good point actually is that you're constantly under scrutiny aren't you um, yeah. And I think the quote from the book is, with a constant and relentless drive to improve, teaching has no end point. It is never mastered. That's a quote from you, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought that's a really good point because it is this constant scrutiny. You don't even realise it's constantly there until you're not in that situation anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I and think I th you, have yeah. To, like, you have to make your peace. If you're going to come into teaching, I spoke about this at um, an early careers thing at the weekend. If you're going to come into teaching, you have to make your peace with the fact that there is no end point. You will never have completely um mastered well, to do list is this never job. clear either you know yeah yeah and you will never be an expert the more I yeah. read about English the, the more I realize that I don't know the more I read and so and that's that actually um it can be terrifying um but if you if you think about it that that's really um that that's going to entertain us until retirement that's really exhilarating and exciting to me to know that me I'm too, yeah. never going to be bored of my subject you know it's ever evolving um and the curriculum plays such a a, a large part in that about so you how have to harness that don't you like Definitely. you say you have to harness that idea and run with it rather than feeling oh no you know I'm worried about this that or the other you know it's like you say it's definitely definitely a thing and I think the idea of us or people being English teachers who can you know realize that like you say that you're never going to be a master at it I think that's a really good point yeah definitely um so in terms of imposter syndrome how would you sort of sum it up that somebody could some sort of strategy or something they could do to try yeah. and help them overcome that 
I think I think it's being really mindful of the language that you use. Um, I think um, I think we I was just or you know can I just or I'm sorry that um, and removing that, having a little bit of conviction behind you know you you are deserving and worthy and valued um, within a profession that you can ask questions and you don't need to apologise for them. So I think really thinking about the language that you use to describe yourself and the language that you use to describe your actions is so key. Um, I think that's I also, really powerful. I think yeah. that's really powerful. And I think listeners will, you know, it, will relate to that. A lot yeah. of people will. Most, you know, like you say, especially women. But I think that's a really powerful little tool to have in the back of your mind. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, on. no. It's all right. I, but I, I do think a great deal of, you know, is, is moving away from apologising for asking questions when you are more than entitled to ask questions. You know, you <laughs> view, view whoever is line managing you or mentoring you um, as, as a support tool and not, you know, somebody that, that you can only go to if, if it's something catastrophic. Um, so that would be my first strategy is think about the language that you use to describe yourself and your actions. Um, the second thing would be um, think about the crowd that you're surrounding yourself with. Um, and there's a really interesting piece I read around this, again, coming back to kind of female dynamics within groups and English teachers, obviously, we're predominantly female. So it's being aware yeah, exactly. of that because... Um, you know, we, we fall into um, into habits, I think, sometimes with um, with a female heavy group or, or team um, or female leaders. And I've been guilty of this in the past, by all means, is um, making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that celebrate your achievements. And, so, you know, when you come to them and tell them there's something really exciting that you're working on, that they really kind of behind you, that you're cheerleaders as such, because the more that you can hear that language being used to describe yourself, um, the more you're going to then model it as well, you know, and it, it is, it's that symbiotic process, that, that feeding into each other, of building each other up is really, really important. Um, and last but not least, it's actually sometimes listening to that voice of imposter syndrome because um, it's the, it, it, that, the things that, that imposter syndrome tell us that we're not good enough at, that we need, you know, I don't know that enough about that area, I don't know enough about this thing that I've got to do for my job. That's the thing that's telling you where you need to prioritise your learning or your knowledge or your expertise. Um, and so it's it's handy to have that sometimes because it means that I know what I need to focus on to get better. Um, and so it's almost this kind of inner critic that, you know, if you, if you listen to it too much, that it's too, it's distracting. You'll never get anything done. It can be destructive. But yeah. 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 But mm. if you kind of, you know, if you temper that with actually there's lots of things, there's lots of strengths that you have this voice is just reminding me of what I need to focus on. And actually that really helps me because I think, okay, if I'm not good at that particular thing, that's where I need to focus my energy on. That's the book that I need to read to arm myself with knowledge yeah. so that it doesn't feel like it's something that's constantly distracting me. Um, so that would be my advice to anybody that's kind of um, trying to navigate their way around um, imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, because I really like that. I really like the idea of that, you know, what you've just said is something that people can really relate to and they can apply it I mean I just think it's another thing that is strange linked to that is the fact that every lesson you can't help it you reflect on it don't you I mean especially in the earlier years I mean you still do it <laughs> all years but you know paranoia whatever you want to call it you just reflect on every little thing I think we've and... developed that because the system <laughs> developed a you know lesson observation system yeah, that's as you all I mean. know historically yeah. developed that so you would sit down and somebody would go so how do you think it went and you go well you already know how you know that it yes. went or you think and I'm just yes. going to wait for that so it doesn't necessarily kind of pull out which is why you know things like moving to coaching and 
focusing um, staff attention on one thing at a time and mastering that and improving that is far more purposeful, not only for curriculum or for the working school, but for, for making people feel better about themselves. Definitely. Um, I think and that's the thing. You have work, to empower you know? people, don't you, to yeah, feel better about, and to feel better in their job in that respect. Because that's what I was kind of leading to is the fact that you have all this self-reflection constantly about your teaching and your lessons, but you don't do it enough, like you say, which leads to the good thing about imposter syndrome, as you say, is that you can reflect on your feelings about different things you're doing to help you improve you know not I don't mean lessons I mean you know like you say about As being a person, more assertive. Yeah. yeah that's it basically that's what I'm trying to say yeah that's the one definitely yeah. yeah so I think it's really interesting um the other one thing I just want to mention while we're on that sort of subject about um self-reflection and you know about improving yourself as a person is that so I, I remember somebody said to me a very powerful thing way back in the day I think it was in the first or second year and then when I was training teachers myself over the years I used to use this because I thought it's a really really quite a powerful little thing to think about and that is and you said this in your book don't focus on the white sp uh, sorry focus on the white space not the black <laughs> dot <laughs> and I remember actually writing the whiteboard I had a trainee teacher and I was um, mentoring her and she came in and she was upset and I said to her, see that little black dot in the middle of that board that I've just put there? Let's just imagine that's your day. And she was upset yeah. about a, a lesson she'd had with, you know, year nine or whatever. It had gone badly. And I said, just imagine that the whole day is the white space and all your focus is on is that tiny little black dot in the middle. Can you just think of the white space and some of the good things that have happened today? And I just think that's the sort of thing, isn't it, that you need to sort of to help you mentally in terms of when you're having a bad day or whatever. And I know when you mentioned it in your book, you weren't necessarily necessarily referring to it as a day, but I just thought it's really powerful. I think I think we have to build on the like you said we have to build on the strengths we have to build on the good things and relationships are so so that relationship you describe with with the person you're mentoring relationships are so central to that in schools and we often spend a great deal of time talking about the what what we're going to teach you know what it looks like what English looks like what marking looks like but we don't focus on how to develop people's relationships with one another and how actually Definitely. you know develop them in a positive way I think that's um, almost something that's fallen by the wayside a little bit because you do it with students don't you it's all about you have these relationships Definitely. with students and you've got to think about the relationship with students constantly which you do because you have all these different personalities but like you say the whole thing about the other side of the relationships with your with you know the adults in the in the situation it's just like you say fallen by the wayside and I do think it's very important definitely because it can make or break somebody if you have a bad experience when you're training for example it can really really affect you can't it yeah, and I, and and I th I think that um, we underestimate the kind of impact. I was talking about this the other day um, about if people have been poorly managed in the past or poorly mentored in the past, they then bring that to you know starting a new role in a school, and they're the examples, they're the models that they've seen of what it's like to have relation professional relationships with people, and so they end up you know it's 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 almost like when you come out of a poor relationship, they they end up kind of <laughs> making the yeah. same habits or reacting in the same way or thinking that they're going to be you know caught out for example um in that new relationship professional relationship with their, man their line manager and then that that then has a knock-on effect or it can be then that person has been poorly managed in the past and when they come to manage people um they manage in the same way because exactly. they've not seen yeah. it done well and that's so overlooked i think within our our training as a, as a profession overall as to how important building and modeling and demonstrating really healthy relationships relationships is yeah um, definitely yeah. yeah I know it's interesting um into, like you say the impact it can have on 
all sorts of things in your daily life, which is because you work a lot of hours and, you know, you, you need to try and make it the best, best it can be. And if you've got that um, environment where you do have a nurturing environment and where you're not afraid to talk about things and, you know, things might have gone wrong or whatever, then you develop as a teacher and as a person, whatever. So, yeah, definitely. Um, moving on, the next thing I was just going to talk about was communication. And this is a chapter in your book as well. Um, yeah. What would you... I find it really interesting because you talk about emails and I think it depends on the school you're in, doesn't it, as to where, yeah. what the situation is with that yeah. in terms so, of your expectations of how you're meant, how you're supposed, when you're supposed to answer emails and if you're meant to answer them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we're all completely different. And I've had several conversations around this because as a school, we have an email embargo. So we stop all emails and um, kind of, you know, evenings and weekends, we don't have an email. You can send them. The system doesn't shut down completely. But we do say, you know, just just to create some boundaries and some lines. Not everybody agrees with that. Um, I've had quite a few debates around this because, um, you know, and I fully appreciate that there needs to be an element of flexibility. I have children myself and yeah. I, I try not to work the evenings. But if I do, you know, and I'll often draft emails to go out the, the next morning um, and do it that way because I think it's really important that we recognize that this is a job um, and that where what are we saying to people where we start to blur the lines I think is really really important I also argue and obviously I appreciate the fact that this current situation does not lend itself well to that a conversation <laughs> is always a million times better than an email an email yeah will I saw that in up, there yeah like an email will always open up another you know an answer an answer to a question via email will always normally open up another 10 questions and it then becomes a back and forth like a text messaging service and I just end up picking up the phone to anything that's probably more than about three lines long um, because everything gets resolved and you're building those relationships um um, Susan Scott is a really interesting person to read on this. She wrote a book called Fierce Conversations. And one of the, she has uh, several principles. One of the principles is the conversation is the work. And so it's really important that we don't get distracted from the idea that, you know, resourcing and marking and the classroom is, is our only work. Our relationships with the people that we work with are the work. And every time you pick up the phone, instead of um, sending out an email, you're investing time in those relationships. You're finding out about people. You're going to have those, you know, everyday small talk chit chats that, you know, where you find out more things about people, especially if you're working in a new team. And they, that, that's so crucial to building um, the relationships that you'll need for when maybe things are a little bit tricky or you need to have difficult conversations with a member of a team or, you know, that's that's real investment for those those difficult conversations conversations later on I agree with you totally and I think the only other thing about that is which is kind of the opposite side of that is that some people would say that they're so busy they don't have time to have those conversations yeah. that's the only thing isn't it but you've got to try and stop that I mean I'm I was guilty of that a couple of times I've started in new schools and because I wanted to do do the you know be the best I can at my job I'm not saying I am but I wanted to be the best I could be then I would kind of put everything into it and sometimes I wouldn't even leave the classroom for days on end you know, obviously I'd go home at night I wasn't living there but you know what I mean I'd be yeah I'm not saying stuck in it. it's my that, choice um, and I think that I should have looking back now I should have made more of an effort to go right I'm going to stop it's lunchtime I'm going to go over the staff room and I did do that but quite a lot of the time I would end up just getting embroiled in what I was doing and so what would you say about that because I think that that is quite a 
you know, I think quite a lot of people do fall, you know, you, you can end up doing that quite easily, can't you? Yeah, and it's the best of intentions. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody goes into work to do a poor job or have poor relationships at all. This, you know, this is very much kind of, it's something that, that creeps up on us. Yeah. Um, I would say that there's two things really that play, isn't there? And everything to do with workload and wellbeing is what can I do as an individual? What can my school do to support me? Um, as an in, a, a, a school systems have to allow people to meet. And um, this is kind of probably going against some some um, viewpoints. But I actually think that meetings, if they're doing the right way, can be really, really useful for, for providing regular opportunities for people to have conversations. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be faculty <laughs> meetings. It can be book club or, you know, just regular opportunities for people to come together is so important to be able to have those conversations because we all know what it's like to work in schools where for the first half term we barely breathe or speak to another human being. Um, (laughs) We have to work harder in order to have those conversations and we, you know, we have to appreciate the fact that we are, you know, if you want to compare it to something, a customer facing job, what we would call in in finance, customer facing job. You're in front of students all day so we have to make time, we have to make sure that we're making time for those conversations conversations even if it's five minutes at the end of the day um how can schools support um how, how can um yeah the other way that schools can support to do that is by making sure that meetings are set up in such a way that we're not having meetings for meeting meeting sake not for the sake the, of it yeah yeah the time is available there but i don't have to sit in a room until 4 30 because the director time says i need to sit in a room for 4 30 we don't have anything to talk about we don't need a meeting but i think that it's 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 never been more important than now um, to, to make sure that we're speaking to people on a regular basis and having those conversations so that would be my advice kind of in this current situation yeah I mean do you find that from your own personal in school situation at the minute do you find that people have um, sort of embraced the whole I mean we're using teams or you know do you find that people have embraced, embraced the zoom teams etc where you can have conversations now that they might not have had before they've had more time for group conversations and team conversations have you found that's helped or I, I think or so I think you know because I, I'm I come to the school in January um it's oh, been, yeah. so it's been really useful for me as an opportunity to kind of you know get to get to know the team um it was tricky at the beginning I think because you're having to find a new way of working yeah um I also think David Crystal did a really interesting thing about this around kind of how how exhausting it is to have conversations over video call because you're switched ah. on, you're on all the time. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. normally if you're sat around a meeting table, you, yeah, you can eat can... a biscuit and nobody's looking at you all That's the time true. and, you know, yeah. the attention isn't on you. Whereas there's that you, you you feel this kind of unease of being switched on so there are the challenges that come along with it but I definitely think that you know we've continued to have um, um, faculty meetings within our English department at school we've been running um, weekly CPD sessions that oh, are very that's good. informal yeah, very important yeah, yeah um, very informal you know Teams has got like a breakout session you can go into discussion groups that's and just it, have yeah. a chat and it means that we can mix those around so different people new members we've got new members of staff that have come along that are starting in September. So it's really about investing those times in relationships and finding opportunities to do that. Um, particularly while we've got the time to do so more. I was going to say, while we've before. got the time now, yeah, yeah it's kind of like so. you get into the habits of doing it in a way. So even when yeah. everyone's back in school, hopefully they'll still, you know, be this people will realise the importance of it and carry on doing it in some way or other. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I hope, I, I like to think that our, our new staff have probably had more conversations with uh, members of the department, you know, the department are going for a walk on Friday, group, you know, socially distanced walk on Friday and um, and our new NQT is going along. So it's, it's really, that's that, good. you know, they'll yeah. know so many faces by the time they walk through the building and that's, that's really reassuring, I think. 
definitely 100% yeah that's a, that's a really good point as a you know English teachers the marking is something that can take over completely take over your life I mean I used to I'm sorry to keep going about myself but I'm just trying to <laughs> give no, the no, example no. that I used to sort of spend hours marking evenings weekends whatever lunch times whatever because you know you want to do a good job don't you for the students and you feel like you want to do but actually the revelation in the book is that you don't actually have to spend all that time marking and I, I used to try not to write reams and reams especially as the years went on I used to just sort of put questions in or whatever it depends on the school policy yeah, and they'd yeah. answer questions themselves and you know and that you know what I'm trying to say is that you can kind of do it so that it's smarter can't you in terms of the amount of time you spend marking Definitely. and that links I think to quite a big chunk of the healthy well-being in schools in terms of English teaching what do you you know what are your views on that yeah I think I think healthy well-being in schools I'll come to Martin in a minute yeah healthy well-being in schools is definitely how much time it's not how much time we're in school but it's how we're spending that time and that right. as long as we can make sure that teachers are spending as much of their time as possible talking about curriculum or talking about their teaching or thinking about their teaching or thinking about their subject, the better they're going to feel by coming in the building. And that's why I think marking feels almost as a distraction, because mm. when it's done poorly, it's not fulfilling. It doesn't do what it want, what we want it to do. So it doesn't improve students sometimes in some instances, the way that we mark doesn't improve student outcomes. And I think, like you say, historically, I think we've had that kind of element of, of more is better attached to a lot of what we do in schools and so if anything looks like it's more streamlined um then we automatically think it's not going to be as good and that's kind of what ha what happened with feedback and marking yeah. so we go well I'm not writing a paragraph so it can't be as useful um and you know this idea that busyness is 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 better work when mm. I, I would argue that it's not um with marking so I've been using whole class feedback now which is um um for about the last four or five years which is where instead of um individual marking you know as an English teacher if you're marking 30 sets of books you're going to see the same four or five things and you end up writing the same four or five things over yeah. and over again marking whole class feedback just you know it's essentially looking through those 30 books um, collating those four or five things and putting it on a, on a collaborative you know whole class feedback sheet that will then go into all of the students books yeah direct them to the particular area it's far more fulfilling because you know that you're picking up on the things that, you know, kids aren't going to get distracted by putting capital letters in or, you know, by changing, um, changing things that aren't capital letters to capital letters, which isn't actually the focus of what you want them to do. You want them to improve at analysis or you want them to, you know, and so the, the, the feedback is far more fulfilling. The feedback is far more purposeful. Um, but it's also, um, it, does what we want it to do which is um make sure that we can spend our time focusing on our subject knowledge and things like that instead of marking for six eight twelve hours a week um but it also improves students um, um students work students progress which is essentially what we want which is the main thing do. definitely exactly. yeah you know um i would argue and i know i've had quite a few conversations with people that want to have a look into whole class feedback and um, yeah judgment and alternative ideas and they often say well I'm bound by the school policy so I, I can't really stray yeah. from that 
Um, my suggestion or my, you know, my advice there would be um, ask to trial it with maybe one class. So ask, ask, you know, speak to head department or your key stage lead and ask to trial whole class feedback or, you know, speak to head even or whoever's overseeing assessment and ask to trial it with one class for a term and see how it goes. Yeah, um, because the proof know. is in the pudding. If you can show, exactly. if you can demonstrate yeah. that it is effective, yeah. you know, and it's and it's progressed and it's helped students to progress even further then. Yeah, yeah definitely. And then and it can it, be rolled it out. Start, it? Yeah, and it starts a conversation then. And that was how we ended up, you know, that's how we ended up rolling out whole class feedback in my previous school so it was just a case of let's see let, let's see how this works and then let's have a conversation around it and then let's see how it works on a bigger scale and then then we'll have a conversation around it and doing things in a gradual manner that you know don't feel like we're coming in and saying this is rubbish let's do this instead I think is really it comes back to the how it comes back to the relationships so because I know sometimes at parents evening in the past because I started doing like a like you say like a whole um class feedback and towards the you know the last couple of years or whatever and parents initially were oh you know this book isn't being marked properly because you've just got this and I remember on parents evening but the student would say well actually you know I'm fine they obviously the proof is in their view as well and they'd be saying well actually I find this really helpful so have you got anything sort of advice for the listeners about in terms of what parents might say about that and what the you know what I would 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 say if you've been traditionally marking um any class so say you've got a year eight student let's say and you've been traditionally marking their book and you see what they've done in response to your traditional feedback um and you know the improvements that they've made and then do the same with whole class feedback, I would put money (laughs) on the fact that the improvements that come out of whole class feedback would be categorically better. So I, I, I take my, I take my books along to parents evening and have the the conversations with parents. And I would argue if you put that in front of a parent, say, look, these are, this is the the improvement as a result of me giving a detailed feed, you know, paragraph of feedback. Here's the improvement when we use whole class feedback. And the other argument that you've got is the fact that whole class feedback takes such a, you know, less period of time Mm. that not only is it more effective, but it puts you in a position where you're able to mark more frequently should you so choose to do so. So actually the feedback becomes very much as it's designed to be a continual process, an ongoing process of, you know, well, okay, you've done this. Let's think about this. You've done this. Let's think about this. And that's what we're wanting to do. We want to, we want to help students improve. I would argue that, you know, you writing as much as the child for an assessment in order to help them improve doesn't do that. So just quickly for people who who are listening, who may not have come across, because there are people who might not have come across this before. When you say you put a sheet in the books, would you like to just quickly describe yeah, what, what that would yeah. be like? Not yeah, you putting so, the sheet in, the actual yeah. sheet. <laughs> well, one, the students put the sheet in because if I had to stick That's 30 gonna, sheets in, then yeah. Um, then, yeah. Time so consuming. It yeah. Is, yeah, it's time. Everything is time costed. If you think about the time you value. You think cost. about it smartly, don't you? Yeah, sorry, yeah. you were going to say about time costed. Go on. Yeah, so so time cost is really important, I think, for any anything that you're looking to do in school. So how much time have I put into it? Um, versus how much use I'm going to get into it. And I take that approach with um, resourcing as well. Really important. If I'm putting a PowerPoint together for an hour's lesson, has it taken me an hour to put together? If it has, and I'm never going to use it again, it's probably not very useful. And so it is really thinking about kind of time cost. But yeah, going back to kind of whole class feedback. Mm -hmm. So the feedback sheet would be, you know, you'd have key strengths and you you could name students. Some people feel comfortable doing so, some people don't. It all depends, I think, on the relationship you've got with the class. So key strengths of those work um maybe you could even take a photo of an example and get the students permission say do you mind i thought your paragraph here was fantastic i want to share that as an example with the class and you can include that on the sheet itself as well which is really powerful um 
And then you kind of, I have like a spelling and grammar area, so a literacy area where there were common spellings. You know, if we're studying spectacles, we all know how often that we get Priestley without the E or Priestley with the I, E before Definitely. the I or whatever yeah. else. So yeah, the common spellings will come up in, in a little list for them to look through and correct. Um, so they know the words that they're looking out for rather than just handing it back and saying that spelling is wrong correct it because yeah. they don't know what the correct spelling looks like and if you want to do that with everybody spelling you'd be there all day that's and then, it yeah good yeah. point and then you have four or five key improvements that have cropped up across the class as a whole so coming back to inspector calls if we were looking at the character of mr burling um have you explained the fact that we understand that he's a capitalist so that might be one improvement have you used quotations to back up your ideas that might be another improvement um, have you used analytical language? So this suggests, this implies, this connotes. That might be another feedback point. And so, and then you can number those, say one to five, and you can allocate, if you wanted to, you can allocate those to students and say, this is the area I want you to improve on if you want to be directive. For a more capable class, sometimes you can say, have a look at the five key areas of feedback. Which one do you think is yeah. most applicable to your work? And that's when, and this comes really from establishing routines and frequency of using yeah. the process over and over again. Training the class to yeah. do that sort of thing. It's, yeah. a, it's what we call assessment literacy, that, that students ah. become aware that they understand where they need to improve. And that's really powerful. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how, how whole class feedback looks in process. And then I've got a few examples on my blog as well that might help out with that. Yeah, that's really good. And what is the uh, what is the um, blog address again? Um, it's www.sesmis, so S-A-Y-S, miss, um, dot wordpress com. That's it. Brilliant. OK. And also on Twitter, you're um, you're at Sesmis, aren't you on Twitter? I am. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of I mean, like you say, you know, you've got the blog, you've got Lit Drive, etc. All these resources. And I just think, well, I just think it's amazing. I don't know how you've had time to sort of do all these things. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say to you that I know you, your current book and you've got another one coming out soon, haven't you? So I don't know whether you wanted to yes. just talk about that. Yeah, so um, Symbiosis, the curriculum in the classroom, I've co-authored with Claire Hill and that's available for pre-order now um, on Amazon for a September release, hopefully. Um, I think we're on we're on track. We're just doing final edits. Um, but that very much kind of builds upon this idea of the, um, the how of the curriculum. So it talks through what um, kind of a gold standard of curriculum looks like, but it actually makes that connection that if your curriculum is 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 brilliant, you feel much more fired up about coming into work every day. And if you've been involved in designing the curriculum or you've been involved as part of that process and, and collaboratively, um, how much more purposeful you feel as a teacher in school. And so it kind of gives a number of strategies around how we can do like that, what I call the how of the curriculum. So what it might look like in the classroom um, to make us feel a sense of fulfillment and how we can work as teams um, to ensure that those, um, those people, those teachers that might come in and go, oh, I've, I'm only two years into my career. Curriculum isn't really, you know, for me, that's something yeah. that my head of department does. That's something mm -hmm. that somebody above me does. Actually, how we can involve everybody to make sure that we're developing curriculum designers of the future. Those people are going to be designing the English curriculum in four or five years. And what we, can we do to support them with that process? So. That's really interesting. Yeah, very good point. And you mentioned your co-author in this book. It's Claire Hill, did you say? It is Claire Hill. She's, so I don't um, know. Do you want to just say who she is? Because I'm yeah, not, so not She's, across, um, she's teaching and learning um, lead across the trust um, for Turner Free Schools, which is down in um, in Kent. She's also the organiser of Research Ed Kent as well. Um, and she's networks officer for Lit Drive. So she takes care of kind of the CPD element of Lit Drive. Ah, OK, great. 
Well, I think that's it then. I really, really appreciate the time you've given to us today for this. Um, hopefully, like I say, I'm sure people will find it useful. Really hopefully fun. you have a smooth transition when you go back to school and have a lovely summer holidays. I don't suppose we'd be going anywhere much, but have a lovely summer holidays with your, your family. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks, Tom.